On the other side of Texas, history has its place. On the other side of Texas, justice rules the case. They don't like it, they don't love it. They say we're all wrong, but on the other side of Texas, hoss, we roll along. Hey there, howdy. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of The Other Side of Texas. This edition, like the next five that will follow, will be pre-recorded shows where we've got some great content for you lined up, and I'll tell you more about that here in just a moment. But first, I need to tell you why these programs are pre-recorded, and it's because, and I've got the young... Master Samuel Leeson here. Samuel, tell the folks who are listening why we are not live. Where are we going to be by the time they hear this show? Oyo. Where is that? In Colorado. Are we going to be in the mountains? Sure. And where are we going to, what is Olio? Where do we stay? Um... In a house. Is it a house? A house made of what? Wood. Made of wood. So maybe it's a cabin? Yeah, yeah, it's a cabin. Okay, and are there animals there? Um, a little bit. Um, a little bit. I'm not really sure. They're not really close by our house, but I'm pretty sure um, on the age of seven I saw a deer. A deer at the age of seven. Wow. But what else is there with the big horns and it's big and it's black? A moose. Are there a lot of moose there? Yeah. Yeah. They live in, what are those trees called that they live in? All those bushes down by the stream where Um, we go and we go fish? um, Are they called willows? Yeah. Yeah. Willows. So, are we going to fish a lot? Sure, on a boat. And we also, we're going to just stand in streams and fish. What kind of uh, fish do you want to catch? Um, a rainbow crop. Crop? Is that your way of saying that I'm failing as a father? A oh, rainbow trout. Oh, trout. Rainbow trout. trout. But what we really want to catch is a brown trout, right? Yeah, they're big. Yeah. Okay. So what are you most looking forward to on our vacation? Having fun. Yeah. Are you, fun. Are you going to find a... Uh, you put together a little obstacle course for the chipmunks, right? Yeah, um, we were going to sh- we put on a show on our last day. But um, we had to cancel it because it got too dark. But this year, we're going to be able to have plenty of chipmunk shows, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's just easy. We just find nuts, and then we just pump, and we make a good obstacle course as we can. We put sticks and logs and rocks in there, and we, put, we make sure we put nuts on it so they follow it, and that's how they follow chipmunk um, obstacle. And some squirrels... Like bean meanies, and they come and tease the chickmunks. They say, No, it's mine. So they begin to fight over it. Yeah. So that's where we are, but we still have a great week lined up for you here on other side of Texas, uh, here live on air as well as on the podcast. Uh, you'll find this week that we have a great series with a great academic. His name's Branding Roddinghouse. He's a PhD. Out of the University of Houston, and Roddinghouse and I have sat down and done a five-part series on the Texas Legislature. It's Texas Legislature 101 is the name of the series. If you have friends, if you're really interested, and many of you who tune into this program are interested in Texas politics, I want to encourage you to share. We're going to put it up as a series there on our Apple podcast and share that with your friends Uh, We're going to go through the origins of the Texas legislature, the governor, the history of the governor, the lieutenant governor and the Senate, the House, and how the House and the Senate have always stood opposed in Texas government. And 
Then we've got other, we're going to replay some interviews that we've done, some interviews that I've gotten the most feedback on, and we'll have some new stuff as well. So we're hanging out at Olio right now. Right, Sammy? Yeah. 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 Right tomorrow, bro. Yeah. Well, we're, we're recording this. Yep. And uh, we're heading out of town. Yep. But as you listen to this, we are having a great time in Olio. And I appreciate you tuning in and uh, for telling your friends. And the Leesons are going to be having a great time. Hope you enjoy what you hear ahead this week. When you're best friends with the founder of the Lubbock County Militia, you get your own radio show. It's the other side of Texas with Jay Leeson. I worked the rigs from three to midnight on the Corpus Christi Bay. I'd get off and drink till daylight. Hey. We know him as Scott Braddock, a quorum report, the editor, Braddock on Texas. But today, by my own request, I've asked <laughs> to talk about Braddock on Braddock. He is Scott Braddock. I want to get into uh, a little bit of what brings Braddock to this point in his life. Braddock, how are you, buddy? I'm doing well, sir. How are you? How are you feeling about this? Well, I can tell you, and just so that the listeners know, I told Jay this when he first asked me to do this segment. Of course, I'm going to say whatever my buddy needs. Uh, my, uh, what I say is, yes, I'm going to do whatever my, whatever my friend needs. I'll talk about myself. But you can, you can tell I'm uncomfortable with it because I'm just not somebody who talks about himself. And one of the things is uh, that uh, one of the things about my philosophy is that in covering news, you do everything you can to not be the story. You know, the issues are the story, and the other the players involved are the story. The journalist should not be the story. By the way, you'll notice around the country that's not the trend. It's not the trend, and I appreciate the discretion on your part. I, I, mean, I guess I'm kind of a throwback in that way. Well, I think here's the deal. is mm-hmm. I, Whenever you earn the right to be heard on professional merit, that's great. And that's what we all try to achieve. But there comes a point where I think that listeners, you know, you were, you've been with us on West Texas Drive when we were doing that mm-hmm. show and now on other side sure. of Texas. This is somebody people hear from on a week by week basis, 15, 20 minutes at a mm-hmm. time. And it may roll through their minds a few questions I have for you here. Like, uh, okay, where'd you that's st- a good way to put it. I appreciate that. Wh- Go ahead. What point in your life? Do you, at what experience puts you in a direct trajectory to where you are now? What is one experience that that definitely puts you on the road to being editor of the Quorum Report? It's a question I get often, actually, is how do you get that job? Because people uh, who enjoy Texas politics, you know, think it is a dream job. And I have to tell you, they are right. It is. Um, But it's not a position that I applied for. Uh, Like a lot of the positions uh, that I've held over the years, it it was more a thing of being the guy who was willing to do the work. Uh, You know, and one thing that connects you and I is our background as boys from the country, right? We're rural Texans. And one of the things that you said recently that I really took to heart and really appreciated uh, was uh, during the Republican primary earlier this year, you had said something about how my work was helping to inform a lot of folks about their uh, interests, uh, you know, and the way they're being represented in Austin, especially for the rural folks. Uh, it means a lot to me because I'm from rural Texas. I'm from Wharton County, uh, which is you know a tiny little place in southeast Texas, um, not of a whole lot of note. Um, you know, it's we were, and I grew up on a farm. Uh, grew up, uh, you know. Uh, uh, as uh, row crop farmers, you know, cotton, maize, corn. I put it this way. The rice farmers were rich people compared to us, Jay Leeson. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I come from that background, and I'm always somebody who uh, is going to do whatever job is in front of him because uh, that's the way you grow up on the farm. But I always dreamed of being in radio. That's all I ever wanted to do. And so being able to talk to the folks uh, in Lubbock uh, and, in a, in a, you know, in a broader way across Texas, uh, you know, on, on your podcast, et cetera, um, that's a dream for me as an 8-year-old kid to be able to do that. Uh, eight-year-old me would not be, you know, would not believe that, you know, 37-year-old me gets to do this. Um, so, uh, you know, when I first got my shot at working in radio, that was in Brenham, Texas, 
in Washington County, which we've talked about a lot. And um, when I was working at KWHI, Friendly Country, 1280 AM, uh, one of my bosses had asked, have you ever thought about doing news? Up to that point, I was a DJ, and you know my first jobs were uh, you know, reading the school lunch menus on the air, you know, playing some George Strait, uh, doing stuff like that, full-service radio. Um, and so I ended up doing news because they needed me to do that. They asked, would you be interested in doing news? I said yes. Same thing was true at Aggie 96, K-A-G-G in College Station, Texas, which I know might, you know, raise some hackles with the folks out in Lubbock, but, you know, it's my background. Um, and had my first job as a uh, as a news reporter. Imagine this out on the West Coast because uh, I had already uh, become uh, you know, a father of a young daughter uh, when I was uh, 19, 20 uh, years old, and, and 19 or 20 years old, and um, you know, needed to start making some real money and leave the DJ work behind. Uh, so I got my first real news job in Washington State uh, and uh, you know, just went from there. And it was always about two things. It was always about uh, pursuing what I wanted to do, uh, which was you know, telling people the truth about things and doing hard work, and providing for my family. It was as simple as that. Uh, and in the meantime, you know, always being the guy who would say, yes, I'll do that, uh, took me on quite an adventure from the West Coast back home to Texas to uh, the largest markets in the state, working at KTRH Radio in Houston, KRLD Dallas, uh, Dallas-Fort Worth, and uh, then Texas State Networks in Austin, uh, just all over the place. And, uh, you know, and, and when, um, when the opportunity came up to make a jump from radio into something else, because at that point, I had done radio professionally for about 15 years um, to do something else to uh, to cover politics uh, exclusively because up until then when I was on the radio, I covered mostly politics, but other things as well. Uh, but then covering politics exclusively, couldn't pass it up. So I uh, joined the Quorum Report in 2013. So as an eight-year-old boy in mm-hmm. Washington County. Well, uh, in Wharton County for that. Oh, sorry. Yeah. There... Who exposed you to radio? What what made you begin to dream that you would do that one day? Honestly, it was listening to some of the political shows. Uh, this might sound ironic to people, but I was listening to uh, Dan Patrick's radio station out of Houston, uh, KSEV and KPRC. Uh, he had uh, his own show in the afternoon. I'm speaking of our lieutenant governor, not the sportscaster. Um, at the time, of course, Dan Patrick was a, a conservative talk show host out of Houston. He had the Rush Limbaugh show on the air, and he had other conservative hosts on the air. And, uh, you know, being from the country, I'm everybody that I grew up around with, pretty conservative people. And, I, you know, it always sounded like they were having fun, Jay Leeson. It always sounded like every, you know, whether it was Rush or Dan or whoever, they, all, they sounded like they were having fun. And that that sounded appealing to me, uh, but of course, as a little kid, I didn't know how much work that was going to be. So, so actually getting to do it, um, you know, I, I always tell people that you know, by the time I turned sixteen, when I had my first job in radio, I had already achieved my dream. So everything after that was, you know, pretty much gravy. Wow. And that's where I'm at. Achieving mm-hmm. the dream at sixteen. Yeah, so then what do you do? Yeah. <laughs> I knew I wanted to be on the radio, but then after that, what? Um, you know, so that you know, that turned from being disc jockey to a full service host to uh, then being a news reporter, being a talk show host, all that sort of stuff, um, and uh, just getting to really stretch my legs and do all of it. Yeah, so I've got those memories, too. Of course, this is not my primary vocation. Radio pays and fun in relationships, I've found. But mm-hmm. I think I'm, as that 16-year-old boy who's already achieved the dream, ready to retire, you surely weren't prepared for a couple of moments in your broadcasting radio broadcasting uh career to come give me mm-hmm. give me a best and worst of that experience probably the best of being in radio uh, had to do with providing potentially life-saving information for people uh when hurricanes Katrina and Rita were uh bearing down on the Gulf Coast this is when I was working in Houston um the hurricane Katrina had just ravaged New Orleans uh and there was another storm that was pointed right at uh, Houston uh and uh this was 2005 uh and I was one of the reporters and by the way at uh, at KTRH, uh, Clear Channel Communications owned that station and seven others in Houston at the time. And uh, so what they ended up doing was simulcasting the broadcast that I was doing on KTRH on eight stations 
uh, as people were trying to evacuate ahead of Hurricane Rita, uh, which it was about three million people who evacuated from Houston, something like that. Mm. And I was one of the guys who was walking along the freeway in the hot summer sun in Texas, um, you know, helping people understand what was going on, talking to people who were stuck in their cars. I mean, that evacuation was uh, pretty disastrous, actually. Uh, you had people actually die in that evacuation. And, um, you know, after the, after the aftermath of that, uh, the aftermath of the storm, um, I, I think it's a high point in the career because what it is is you learn what you're really capable of when you're covering something like that. A story like that is so big that it's hard to get your mind around in that moment. Um, and you really rise to the occasion. Uh, even though it is a disaster, uh, you know. Obviously, the the low point for me uh, was uh, at a at a different station in Houston, um, where and again, not comfortable with talking about myself. But if people Google this, Scott Braddock fired, they will see all sorts of stories about the fact that I was fired from a station in Houston uh, amid a controversy uh, that was um, um, spurred by an abortion issue. But uh, it was interesting because uh, it, even though it was a low point, I felt low, low point professionally just from the standpoint of I was out of a job. Uh, I could still see the positive in it because there were conservatives who rallied to my cause and rallied to my side because they felt that I was somebody in media who was always fair to conservatives. And liberals were also saying that uh, you know it was not right what had happened to me. So people on all sides, people of all stripes were upset that I had been fired. Um, but So for, for me personally, it was a low point because I was out of work. But on the flip side of that, I could say uh, it was a positive because so many people – uh, were supporting me, and it ended up putting me where I am today. Sometimes when you have something that you think is your lowest point, it is what God intends for you to have and, you know, and at that time in your life because it opens the door to the next thing. And that really was about the time that uh, Harvey Kronberg, who is the publisher of the Quorum Report, had reached out and asked me if I might want to just do some contract writing for him. That's in 2013. By 2015, I was taking over the, uh, taking over the publication in its day-to-day operations. Hmm. I did Google it. Can we talk about it for a moment? Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. All right. So, and I've got. I'm happy to. I've got the Texas Monthly that you wrote, the Texas Monthly article. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had to do with the sonogram controversy. Uh, talk us, give us just a couple of minutes there. Well, the legislature had passed the law that said that a woman uh, had to have a sonogram uh, before she could go forward with an abortion, Uh, and this was a bill that was carried by uh, then-Texas Representative, uh, State Representative uh, Sid Miller, uh, who is now our Agriculture Commissioner, of course, Um, and uh, it was very controversial. Uh, There was a woman uh, who had written uh, an article uh, Carolyn Jones is her name, and I'm trying to remember all this off the top of my head. I don't have the computer in front of me. Uh, but Carolyn Jones had written a piece in which she talked about the fact that she had a baby that had uh, – she was going, she was on track to give birth to a child that she wanted, uh, but she found out that there was a, a serious problem with uh, the pregnancy, and uh, she was, because of the new law, forced to go through something that she had already had, which was have the sonogram again. Um, and I had asked her if she'd want to be, if she would want to tell her story on the radio, and she was very nervous about that. And you know, my point was not to take one side or the other in the issue; it was simply to um, put on display for people what the real-world consequences of these policies are that they're passing in, in the building that I'm looking at right now as I talk to you, as I look at the Texas Capitol. Um, and uh, I did convince her to come on the air with me. Um, and it was shortly after that interview aired uh, that I was let go from the station where I was working. Uh, and um, again, there were, there were people on both sides that were very upset about the fact that I had been let go, uh, that I had been fired. Um, I could not say for sure that it was because of the abortion controversy, but I can say uh, that it was amid this abortion controversy, and that added to the uh, political intrigue around it. Uh, And there were quite a few stories at the time. You're looking at the one that uh, I wrote, uh, but I only wrote a piece about it because so many people had been asking me what I thought about it. Again, not always comfortable talking about myself, but just about everybody at that time who uh, was writing politics, everybody from Harvey Kronberg to Wayne Slater and people like that. Uh, Wayne Slater, who used to be at the Dallas Morning News, and others uh, were asking the question, was you know, was Braddock fired because of abortion politics? Could never really fully answer that question, and um, uh, because who knows uh, in the final analysis, you know exactly what they were, th- what the managers at the station were thinking. Uh, but I don't think they were expecting to have, to have you know several months of bad publicity for having fired me. But I do appreciate all the people who. Uh, had reached out at that time and 
all the people who offered their support. And if not for them, I wouldn't be where I am now. It, it, but I think management's line was that you appeared on another station, right, to talk about it. They had said that uh, I was. Well, they had said to me that I was in breach of contract for appearing on another station. The problem with that is I had not signed a contract with the with the station where I was working. Hmm. Okay. So it was all very convoluted, okay, so, to, to be honest with you. Okay, so that is in 2013. So, Braddock, talk yes, to sir. me a little bit about that. We've talked about radio as a dream. You've achieved your dream mm-hmm. at 16. You're in big markets in Texas. And, and, this and comes, small ones. Well, but you'd worked your way into yeah. to very big markets. Yes, sir. Talk to me about the adversity there in 2013 before quorum report became a possibility but that mm-hmm. state of flux for people and i think this translates across but uh, across all professions people come in they get canned the there's a mm-hmm. consolidation or there's a takeover what were a couple right of or points, whatever mm-hmm. what were some some learning points for you that have become true norse on your compass now that when when the adversity comes, when the profession, when the professional hurricane, as it were, comes, mm-hmm. what, is, what are a couple of things that you took away from that experience? Well, it certainly was a hurricane, you know, in, in my professional life. Uh, you know, I, like I say, I had dreamed about being on the radio. That's all I ever thought I would do. Um, you know, as a career, uh, I, I thought I'd always be working in radio. And then one of the, there were two sides to that, um, to that controversy as far as, the positive side being so many people coming out and supporting me, but the the negative side was, in a lot of ways, because of the controversy and because of those people supporting me, the radio industry people you know saw me as toxic. They weren't going to hire me because I was surrounded by controversy. So, um, you know, for a while I thought I would never work again. Um, in the meantime, I uh, had some interesting opportunities. Um, you know, I have uh, been writing about construction issues for uh, since that time because there were some folks. Uh, who were working on setting on establishing a, uh, a publication about construction, uh, who had construction issues, who had reached out to me and asked if I would uh, be interested in doing that. And you know, at the time, I didn't know very much about construction at all. And in the meantime, I've learned more than I more than I had ever hoped to about that topic. But Construction Citizen is the name of that publication, and uh, I was actually doing that work. Um, and, uh, you know, covering those issues before uh, I came to work at, at, uh, at the Quorum Report, uh, and I still maintain, uh, you know, my work with Construction Citizen as well, if people want to check that out. Um, but it kind of goes back to what we were talking about. That's right. It, it goes Go back to what we were talking about before, uh, Jay Leeson, which is I was always willing to do the work that was in front of me. You know, when somebody would say, would you give this a try or would you give that a try? I was always happy to say yes. Um, and that came down again to taking care of my family. Um, and it also comes down to, um, you know, opening. And this is, you know, to, like you say, this this can be for, for more than one profession. This can be across professions. Um, you know, when the thing that you're working on doesn't work out, you got to keep moving forward. Um, and one thing that I would say is that um, I had done a lot of work to um, uh, to build a lot of relationships, as you said. Uh, you know, when you're in radio, as you are, um, you do that. You do have the opportunity to build relationships with some wonderful people across industries, um, and you know th- those relationships are what end up putting you in position to uh, have more opportunities down the line. Um, and people should never be afraid of trying something completely different. And I was, uh, I was, I had never been a writer uh, until about 2012, 2013, something like that. Um, and I should say that for all the things that I've been able to achieve, uh, and you know, those include a host of different um, journalism awards and you know, various proclamations in my name and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but I don't, I didn't go to college. I don't have a college degree. I don't even have a high school diploma. I have a GED. Uh, because I did drop out of high school when I was 16. I've been working just about every day since. <laughs> and, um, you know, the, the fact is that it, for me it all comes down to hard work and all do, always doing the work that's in front of me, uh, no matter what it is, and never ever – and see, this is the thing. It's funny when I see um, 
uh, social media uh, blowback to different things that I've written where people will say, oh, you're part of the Austin establishment. Oh, you're part of the liberal media, one of the elites down there. Makes me chuckle because I am a GED holder. So when I see somebody, you know, tweet at me something ugly about how, oh, look, there's Braddock, the trust fund baby who, you know, has always had uh, everything taken care of for him. It's just the, the complete opposite is true. So I don't get angry with those people. I pray for them, um, and I hope that they've got, you know, I, I hope that they have, uh, you know, a good life. I, I try not to be mad at people when they get mad at me because that's not the, the way to behave. Although, as you know, I can be a little hot-headed at times. Just a little bit. Just Nobody's just, perfect. What, Nobody's perfect. I would just have a couple more minutes here, but tell me what what precipitated – in, I don't want to get into the vacuum bag or ask you to dig into a lot of family stuff, but I'm intrigued with the decision at 16 year old at 16 years old to drop mm-hmm. out of school. I was miserable in school. I was a terrible student, and I wanted to go to work, and that's what I did. I, I was working at uh, that radio station that I mentioned uh, in Brenham, and uh, my mother who is, you know, uh, my mother who, who values and prides herself on education, my mother who has a doctorate degree in 17th century literature, uh, my mother uh, had been uh, working at the Wharton County uh, Junior College. Actually, she worked at Blinn College in Brenham, uh, the junior college there. She had also worked at the Wharton County Junior College uh, doing student services in, in Wharton. Um, and uh, when she was doing student services, you know, she had built relationships with the people down there at that uh, at that school. And uh, one afternoon, uh, instead of doing the GED course that some people go through, uh, my mother, she could see how miserable I was, and she wanted me to, to, you know, to go on and work if that's what I wanted to do. So one afternoon, she took me down to the Wharton County Junior College, took me out of school in Brenham, took me down to Wharton, I, and she had uh, one of her friends down there at the college um, administer the GED test to me in a room by myself and her. Uh, and uh, I passed it with flying colors, of course. And then we went back to the Brenham ISD, gave them the paperwork that I had passed the GED test, and and I, uh, I exited the school. There was some talk about taking the GED away from me, but they were not able to do that. Wait, whoa, come on. So that was a little controversial. I don't know how many... I've been in the midst of controversy ever since I was how, a teenager. How many you can drinks, see this already. How many drinks I've had with you, flaming bowls of queso, and <laughs> conversations. And, and you I'm don't just, know this story? the story? So whenever I hear, well, I got my GED. Well, what that typically means is, like, I dropped out of school, things didn't work out like I thought it would, and then, mm-hmm. you know, a decade within the next decade, I then took the GED. Then you go back and get it later. You right, right. took no, it. that wasn't me. You, you're like the Doogie Howser of high school dropouts. I mean, you went down, <laughs> took, took yeah. the GED, and yeah, said, sort of. hasta luego, school. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was just about going to work, because that's what I wanted to do. And, you know, my mother knew that, like I say, she's somebody who really values education. You know, this, uh, my doctor, uh, Dr. Kimberly uh, Downing, my mother, she um, could see that it was the right path for me. And by the way, this does inform um, my opinions about one of the things I write about often, which is this idea that, you know, college is, there are some people who think that everyone needs to go get a four-year degree. I don't agree with that. I think it's it's good for some people, but for other people, there are other paths to success. Uh, and I know that having lived it firsthand, that, um, you know, there's there's no real straight line from high school dropouts at 16 to being the editor of the largest political newsletter in the state. You can't draw a straight line from one of those to the other, but there is a path to success for somebody, even if early in life uh, they don't necessarily follow the same rules as everybody else. Texas Grit, right there with Scott Braddock. Hey, uh, I appreciate, I know you don't like to talk about yourself. I had a similar conversation. I probably sound very uncomfortable. I'm sure, that, I hope the listeners enjoyed it anyway, but I, you know, I, I appreciate your interest in it uh, because, like you say, we've We've enjoyed a lot of time together, but you, there are things you didn't know about no. me because I just don't talk about myself. So That's not my deal. The privilege of having the microphone is you get to push boundaries you and go into lands you didn't know before. Uh, and it's, it's just intriguing thing. to me, too, as close out here, is that uh, Ross Ramsey was in radio as well. 
and he mm-hmm. was talking about how the Reagan administration came in and deregulated the radio, uh, yep. radio in general, and uh, news stations or stations didn't have to have newscasts anymore. So he was let go, and he worked up his All right. he worked up his uh, little freelance folder and went to work. And uh, it's right. just it's intriguing to me to hear that the the people I like to hear from on a weekly basis. Uh, didn't intend to be in the roles that they're in, uh, but they are esteemed uh, throughout most of the state and <laughs> enjoyed by <laughs> most people. And uh, I, I appreciate hearing your story here, Scott Braddock. Well, quite a few people, but as you know, Jay Leeson, if you don't have any people who are against you, then that means you didn't ever really stand for anything, right? Okay. All right, buddy. I, of course, yes. There, yes. I I'm going to with withhold comment there because I can <laughs> I can completely agree with you on those counts. Scott Braddock at Scott Braddock on Twitter. Check out quorumreport.com. Thank you for the time, Scott Braddock. Thank you, sir. Talk Other to you. side of Texas brought to you by Title One, Lubbock's digital real estate and title escrow company. Title One is committed to providing you with the highest level of communication and service. From the time the contract opens until it closes, if you trust this program, you really ought to check these guys out. See how Title I can serve your realty, consumer, and lending needs at TitleOne.com. Hey, here at the other side of Texas, we like to talk Texas politics. But in talking Texas politics, it assumes that the audience knows quite a bit about texas politics so to help us get an entry level for me to learn for you to learn for us all to learn we have dr brandon ronnie house at the university of houston he specializes in presidency in texas politics and has written a book entitled inside Texas politics, politics, policy, and personality in the Lone Star State. He's often sought after in interviews to comment on the news of the day as it pertains to Texas politics. We're glad that Dr. Roddinghouse would take time to be with us here on Other Side of Texas. Thank you for coming on. Hey, it's my pleasure. I'm happy to talk about one of my favorite things with one of my favorite people, so it works out perfectly. So, uh, this is where I want to kick off is you aren't from texas you know i um i was born in kansas um i spent uh, almost all of my childhood in dallas um suburban dallas so we get some texas cred um my parents have moved here actually and kind of the same kind of sunbelt um growth that happened in the 1970s um and they moved away and then moved back mm-hmm. so um i have a kind of Texan by not quite birth. Um, I was close to being born in Texas. I was born about three months after my parents moved away. So I was very close, Jay, but not quite enough. <laughs> so, you know, our first, our daughter was born in Tulsa. And this is a true mm. story. It might, might have been the case with you as well. But we had uh, my mother-in-law send us a bag of Texas dirt <laughs> in a Ziploc bag. I love it. And the first time she stepped on ground outside... It was on Texas dirt. I love it. I, you, we have to do this kind of thing. I'm <laughs> actually, I heard Steve Earle did the exact same thing, yeah. um, and I totally am supportive of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't get the idea from him, but uh, but that's <laughs> yeah. that's what we did. It's its own. I love it. One of the greatest nations on earth. So we we're going to do a five part series here, and this is the beginning of the series. And where I just want to start off, Doctor Ronnie House is. The origins of the Texas legislature. Talk us through early Texas government. Yeah. Well, the, the, the government itself starts with the Constitution, which outlines the rules that the state has to operate within. And uh, without getting too far into the kind of constitutional governance um, history, obviously Texas had a not-so-pleasant relationship with centralized government, um, and so they really sought to change the Constitution as a means to be able to um, maximize sovereignty but minimize central government. Bill Ratliff, who was the former um, Senate Finance Chair and also former Lieutenant Governor, had the following quote. He said, our Constitution was 
understood in the 19th century by people who were terrified of centralized government. Um, it pretty much says it all. So a lot of the institutions in government that we'll talk about will be um, on purpose designed to be minimal uh, and theoretically close to the people. Um, the problem is that there's a tension between the needs the state has and sometimes the ability to be able to accomplish that. So a lot of the struggle we see will not necessarily be between you know Republicans and Democrats, although that happens, but between the kind of institutional rules that limit the ability of government to operate. Um, the early Congresses are a really fascinating story. The first Congress the Republic met uh, in October uh, of 1836 in Columbia, Texas, in what was called a large dog house. Uh, a dog trot house. Uh, this one is kind of oblong buildings uh, that most describe as being meager in every respect. Um, and the early House members were mostly newcomers to Texas. Um, there were some veterans of the Revolution, people who had fought. Um, some of them had fought alongside Sam Houston in San Jacinto. A uh, few of them had signed the Declaration of Independence. Actually, many of the senators had, um, and the range of individuals were um, in terms of patient were uh, from farmers to mechanics um, to um, several other kinds of things. Um, they had organized standing committees to be able to um, create um, kind of structure within. We'll talk later about the Speaker of the House, which is um, the most um, sort of iconic centralized structuring or individual and agent in the House. Um, and early on, although we now kind of think about government as a, um, uh, a sort of functional through parties, there weren't really parties per se early on. What we had were kind of those who were with Sam Houston and those who were against Sam mm -hmm. Houston, and that really split the state. Um, there's a great quote from Colonel James Morgan, who, when Houston was running for a second term, uh, said that old Sam Houston, with all his faults, appears to be the only man for Texas. He is still unsteady and intemperate, but drunk in a ditch is worth a thousand of Lamar and Burnett, uh, the prior president and, and the subsequent president. So uh, there were some strong feelings, Jay, as there are now. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'll give Sam Gwynn, who's been on this program, credit for we've all seen it, but he really writes about it and understands Texas in such a way that leading up into those Congresses, you've had uh, pioneers, and then you've had folks who've fought at the Alamo, who've taken on Mexico, and are just short of being involved in a, a civil war, and they're not going to have a good temperament towards centralized government. Yeah, there's no doubt that this was out of a reaction to what they were sensing in terms of the, 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 the environment. So the Mexican government had not been good to Texas for quite a while before the revolution. They had done everything they could to kind of quash the growth of Texas, even though initially the goal was to populate Texas. So it's not surprising that um, they ended up, um, you know, the Texas government ended up where they did. Um, the problem for the first Congresses was that they faced some fairly serious problems. I mean, although the spirit and the kind of goals of the Republic were laudable and are, as you said, kind of make it historically really fascinating, they were not prepared to govern. <laughs> and the kind of questions they dealt with, like what to do with Santa Ana, who was still like in the possession of the Texians, uh, was really a question. Uh, provisional Pro President Burnett um, essentially said he would kick the question to the first Congress. Well, the first Congress decided that um, they uh, were going to challenge Sam Houston on what to do. Houston said that he wanted to send Santa Ana to Washington to make a treaty with Jackson. The Senate and ultimately decided to keep Santa Ana in Texas. Houston vetoed the resolution, so there's a lot of controversy over what to do about that. Um, the biggest problem that the state faced at the time, or the republic faced at the time, was debt. They had about $1.2 million in war debt, and they were basically flat broke. Well, the one thing they did have was a lot of land. They had about $200 million, 200 million acres of public land. Uh, so some of that was promised to veterans and volunteers uh, during, during the revolution. Um, but they were going to try to leverage that land to try to pay off some debts. Um, problem is, Jay, when you know it, bad luck of the early uh, Texas Republic, the Panic of 1836, which was a sort of nationwide um, panic, uh, nationwide uh, depression, squashed the ability of the Republic to issue um, bonds to be able to basically borrow against the acreage that they had. Um, Texans also don't like taxes. <laughs> uh, and uh, so there were concerns about adding money, revenue taxes, uh, or through uh, the customs, uh, which the state imposed, but uh, had some difficulty trying to, um, trying to navigate successfully. 
Um, the other big issue was just they weren't sure how to deal with the political and economic interconnections. This has been a, a long-standing fight and a long-standing <laughs> so this problem isn't for new. Texas. <laughs> this is not new. No, um, one of my favorite Jim Hightower quotes is that you know remember that you know Christ in the Bible was you know drove, drove out the money changers from the temple and uh, where did they go? But right to the Texas legislature, right? Um, so the first controversy that was a real political consequence was that um, the state had to charge private banks. Uh, what they did was they ended up chartering one called the Texas Railroad Navigation and Banking Company. Well, it turns out that the charter members of this organization were two eminent politicians uh, who were also serving in the Texas Senate. So the interplay has been pretty profound for a lot of years. Oh, and now we're now we're concerned, and I think rightfully, about fundraising during special session. Yeah. <laughs> Small yeah. comparatively. Uh, True, yeah, but the same problems remain, though. Yeah, so let's fast forward into 1876 and forward. Yeah, so the the legislature, obviously, after Reconstruction, with um, a lot of um, difficult political issues. The trouble was that they had to navigate um, through kind of post-Civil War politics, and although the Civil War ends in terms of active gunfire, it doesn't end in terms of the political um, uh, kind of residue that resulted. So the state has to rewrite the Constitution to be able to um, kind of um, accommodate what is thought to be kind of a, a new way of looking at government. If we thought the government of the Republic was small and designed to be minimal, then the current Constitution, the Constitution of 1876, was designed to be even smaller. So the goal was basically to contract um, the executive branch um, and to make it so diverse in terms of the electoral um, um, uh, connections that that it was fragmented across several different offices. Um, the legislature itself um, had to be minimized so that um, you know they had these sessions which were brief and infrequent, and that's the way typically Texas has liked it. I mean, there have been efforts afoot since that time to try to expand the number of years that were met or the time it, that the legislature meets, and they've always been met with uh, rejection from voters. So voters typically like this kind of you know small government, and that's the way that it was designed in that constitution. And that's where we pick up on meeting every other year for six months. And people may not understand that the legislature only meets every two years for 140 days. I said six months, excuse me. Uh, what was that model based off of, Dr. Roddinghouse? Well, so other state legislatures had done something similar. They had had uh, kind of limited time. And so what Texas decided to do was to kind of follow suit. Um, specifically, they followed suit of other southern um, uh, the southern states that had done that. The kind of context here is that there was a real reaction to Reconstruction in the South, which was a very heavily handed federal intervention where essentially governors had a far-reaching power. Um, the governor um, um, at the time, Edmund Davis, is probably the most hated governor in the history of the state, in part because of his position as um, governor during a time when the authority to be able to act was so profound. Um, and so that, that this was really a reaction to what was happening in the federal level all across the South. So Texas decided basically to kind of follow the lead of other Southern states who limited government across the board on all institutions. Do you know how many states still keep a 140-day model every two years? I do. Um, no state is... Um, on par with Texas when it comes to the infrequency of both meeting and the number of days they meet. Um, most states have an annual session that's fairly short. Um, it varies a lot, actually, by state. Um, uh, and so it's um, definitely something that's unique to each. But Texas is really unique and rare in that they have a short session that meets only once every other year. There aren't many other states that have that few, like, total legislative days over the course of, like, a two- or three-year period. And the intention, and I'm talking as a layman, you correct me if I'm <laughs> wrong, but yeah. I've always understood the intention was that you had citizen uh, legislators that had jobs that had to go mm -hmm. by a wagon, uh, by horse, to the legislature so we're only going to do we're going to keep this limited model but this is going to be the method 
We're going to meet for these 140 days so that you don't miss out on your crops every single year. You aren't gone for months at a time uh, every year. Yeah, that's a big part of it. Um, The goal is to keep the legislature in check through frequent elections, but also through infrequent meetings. (laughs) So it's kind of ironic, right? The less that we actually meet, the better. Um, And this is a model that Texans like, um, and generally speaking, that's supposed to keep the the legislature close to the people. Um, even, frankly, the every, once every two years for 140 days seems like a lot for people. There's an old saying that says that, um, you know, no man, woman, or child is safe during the meeting of the Texas legislature, and a lot of people still feel that way. Um, there's a kind of real negative pall over a lot of what happens. Um, some of it is, frankly, self-enforced <laughs> and, self, um, and self-imposed, um, but some of it is um, just kind of um, uh, kind of aberration or uh, it's kind of an outsized um, stereotype of the way the legislature acts. Yeah, so there at the end of the 19th century, mm-hmm. I know today people who follow Texas politics closely know that the legislature is, n- the legislature is not meeting, but it kind of is because we've got all these mm-hmm. select committees out. We've got these meetings going on. You know, Lyle Larson was on the program last week. He uh, – was up in the panhandle and then you've got people who are down on the coast and and all over the state but at the same time uh, this time of year every every other year we're waiting for a letter from the governor that kicks off the legislative budget board and then they meet leading up to so even though it's not technically in session the legislature is at least halfway in session uh, this time uh, every couple of years it, was that the case in the beginning would they just start from scratch on day one or would they yeah. have a bunch of meetings and process leading up to the convening of the legislature no you're, you're exactly right um, i mean the texas legislatures uh, is the most busy uh, most time-consuming part-time job you'll ever have and i think you're exactly right that there really isn't time off i mean they technically don't work full-time, but they definitely are on point. And even when they're not, you know, policymaking or, uh, you know, fact-finding, they're out campaigning. So it is really a full-time job in a way. Um, speaking of full-time jobs, I mean, part of the reason this is the way that it is is that the Speaker of the House has kind of organized and coordinated the legislature. That actually occurs about the time you're talking about, about 1900, a little after 1900 in the progressive era. Um, this was an era that kind of brought in Teddy Roosevelt and um, kind of finishes with um, a kind of global sense that the nation should invest more in um, infrastructure and um, should be more kind of far thinking in terms of um, um, food safety uh, and many other kinds of issues. So um, on, on your question about whether it was always this way, it hasn't always been this way. It wasn't until about the turn of the last century that we found that uh, the speaker was really kind of developing these platforms. Um, part of it is because um, the speaker itself isn't really um, a kind of provision of the Constitution, right? We fight a lot about speakers now. We fight a lot about Speaker Strauss now, um, uh, outgoing Speaker Strauss now. But uh, early on, the House um, really hadn't organized itself in a way that would le- let it be a modern institution. Uh, and so that role has really evolved over the years. In fact, for early speakers, the position was so inconsequential. The first five people who um, held the post did so in one legislative session. <laughs> so mm-hmm. no one wanted to stick around long enough even to get like their official portrait painted. Um, and that's how little um, speakers mattered. Um, but eventually, of course, we have a more modern legislature. And although they don't meet that much, they do have a kind of more modern and um, kind of complete sense of how to conduct themselves as an institution. So, Dr. Brandon Roddinghouse, here in our five-port series, you're listening to part one. The others will be up on our other side of Texas Apple podcast. Uh, pay, pay has always been the same for House members and mm-hmm. senators? It's been, it's been the same in terms of the two branches, um, but not the same at, as it's set right now, right now. Outset at seventy two hundred dollars per month. Um, it's it's been lower. Seventy two hundred dollars per year. Per, per per year. Sorry, yeah, per yeah, year. Yeah. Um, it's been um, it's been up and down. Um, there have been fights about legislator pay. Um, there was one governor who 
was unhappy with the legislature um, and so decided to start to talk about how they get paid too much. Well, the legislature turned around and said, if you think we get paid too much, we're going to make sure you get paid as much as we get paid. <laughs> so they reduced the governor's salary to the salary that they were getting paid. Hmm. Um, it's always been a point of contention. Um, in fact, there's a great 538 article that came out um, about a year ago that compared state legislative pay and Texas, not surprisingly, ranks quite low, but that's on purpose. The goal is that, again, that the legislature doesn't meet that much, and this shouldn't be what is a full-time job. Um, and again, the irony is that it really is a full-time job. We just don't pay it like that. Yeah, especially when you're in perpetual campaigning. Uh, mm -hmm. But there are perks, and do you know times when uh, different, like, health care benefits and different benefits came involved in the legislature? You know, this doesn't come about until, you know, the late 70s and 80s. Um, there's, there's a period also in the U.S. Congress when the goals of both parties were really to retain good people. The problem of turnover has been consistent in the Texas legislature. Um, I haven't done a careful analysis of the early years, but my guess would be that the turnover was so constant that you couldn't keep people in office so that they learned enough so that they could come back and do something positive for their district or for their constituents. So what one perk, like you say, is that um, you know you could get some you know ancillary benefits. Uh, the same is true for the U.S. Congress. Um, of course, it's highly politically fraught, and members don't want to vote on you know something that looks like it's giving themselves a pay raise. Um, that's something that um, wouldn't sell well now, and frankly, it's never sold that well. Yeah, give me give me three themes. I guess I'd be asking you to repeat three mm -hmm. things, but. Three things that people can take away that the legislature started this way, its origins started here, and they are, uh, they are veins that continue up to 2018. Mm, good. good question. Um, I would say one big thing is the difference in terms of parties. Like I said, um, early parties tended to be either kind of nationally driven um, on narrow issues or were based upon whether or not you like or dislike Sam Houston. Um, we reify Sam Houston now, so it's hard to think that, that he could be objected to. But back then, there were some serious political differences between he, especially in Mirabeau B. Lamar, who succeeded uh, Houston as president of the republic. So that growth of the party system is really one big thing. Another big thing is the change in terms of leadership. Now, we think of the early House as being a kind of chaotic affair, and there are lots of great funny stories about how people would literally, like, tackle each other and during points of order would have fist fights. And so there's a lot of great stories um, that, frankly, continue up all the way to the 50s. But early on, it was really just chaos. Um, and so um, one of the things that the speakership did was to really bring in some structure to that. So that was a big factor, especially in the 1920s. Speakers became more ideological. They had a position and a platform, and winning um, wasn't just about personality. So that was a big change as well. Um, and I think that um, the, the final change is just um, the general structure of things. Um, now things are much more organized. The committee system is much more consistent, and so they're able to get things done in a hurry, which wasn't something that was true of the early Congress. But also they can continuously plan, which is something that a big state like mm -hmm. needs. Okay. Well, I'm going to reserve questions, and we're going to end our first installment there, get into governor and then lieutenant governor and the senate uh dr roddinghouse thank you for this we'll look forward to the next one absolutely